health issue uh, that uh, last July was, uh, uh, what, what would they call it? I was <laughs> diagnosed with leukemia. And I've gone through six months of treatment, and we got some good news yesterday that, that we did all these tests and everything, and, uh, and so they found no cancerous cells. <laughs> so what a good time to study the Red Sea rules, right? <laughs> About what you do when you have serious problems. Uh, so yeah, it fits pretty good. Um, yeah, and uh, th this uh, Bible study that we're doing today on the Red Sea rules, uh, beginning uh, the very first rule, there are 10 principles in this little red book. By the way, when I first uh, got diagnosed and got the news, this is the first thing I did. I had to go find that book. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I know I'm going to be having a trial. Uh, but there's 10 principles in, in this book that are really great. That's what he means by rules, Red Sea rules, 10 principles. Uh, what do you do when you find yourself in a situation like Israel found itself, or the Israelites, the Hebrews, found themselves in uh, Exodus chapter 14? Uh, basically, as the author of the book states it, trapped between the deep Red Sea and the devil meaning Pharaoh and his chariots behind you. What do you do? How do you proceed? How do you overcome that? How do you persevere through it? Uh, and they're really great principles, and we're going to try to go through them almost uh, one at a time. Today we're doing uh, a lesson chapter one, which is realize, the first rule, first principle, realize that God means for you to be exactly where you are. God is sovereign, so it's a lot to do with what uh, you've probably heard of is the sovereignty of God is so important. And if you really have that perspective that God is sovereign, uh, you can have great comfort no matter what situation you're in because God's in control, right? Uh, and so he's doing something. You may not know what the heck he's doing. You may not agree with it. You may wish he wasn't doing it this way. But God is in control and God's got a great plan for your life in spite of appearances. So uh, we're going to do eight lessons, uh, a couple of lessons, obviously, then I'll do two of the Red Sea Rules, but today we're doing uh, the very first one about the sovereignty of God. And uh, you should have gotten in your email this morning, uh, and also previously, uh, some uh, emails from me about this and, and some handouts. I do a message and some questions, study questions every week for each lesson. And I'll be sending those out to you every week. Um, if you haven't gotten any, anything from me about the Red Sea Rules, uh, for instance, I sent an outline out this morning and a message, then either I don't have your email or I've got the wrong address or something. Or, or your, uh, your uh, computer may see my stuff and say, junk! <laughs> Send it right to the junk mail, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't doubt it because... Uh, I, I copy myself on it, and my computer sends my stuff to junk mail, so That's not good. I have no idea. Uh, I'm kind of handicapped in that area, but I do the best I can. Uh, and so give me your email address if you're new or if, or, um, if you're not getting it, and I'll uh, be sending that stuff to you. 
as well as you never know what can happen that you can get some really bad weather and we have to cancel or something like that so um, it'd be good to have your email for that so uh, we're going to do eight weeks in a, eight Mondays in a row and uh, as you saw we'll have a lunch here for you and I'll try to tell you what exactly we're going to eat that day I'll, I'll email, you, email you that morning okay uh, and so in today's lesson, uh, you know, when I first saw this uh, movie clip that we're going to show you today, I not only laughed, but I said, that's how I felt for the last six months. <laughs> it's about Inspector Clouseau, oh. you know, a guy who's just completely helpless, and he just goes banging around from one catastrophe for another, you know, and uh, it can't get anything right, and he's just completely at the mercy of... of uh, everything that's going on around him. All right, so uh, the crisis situations. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place, found yourself there? As they say, have you ever had a crisis situation that appeared to be an unsolvable problem? <laughs> yeah, I can tell by the scars on this group that we've all had those. We've all been in those situations. And... Uh, Sometimes our road of life, as we travel the road of life, we come to dead ends like the Hebrews did in today's story. Uh, and God did, he led the Hebrews out of Egypt, out of slavery to freedom, and his promise to take them to the promised land. So they came out with all this optimism. You know, we're going to follow. God has got the Shekinah glory in the cloud. We're going to follow him. And uh, he obviously knows right where he wants us to go. Normally, if you're in Egypt and you wanted to go to Canaan, the promised land, you'd go down the coast road because it was straight, there were cities, there was food, there was water, it was smooth and level roads, and it was about 150 miles. It would have only been about a two-week uh, trip walking. But what did God do? He didn't take them the easy way. He knew what he was doing, but he took them southeast into the wilderness into rough terrain, no food or water there, and it took them 40 years to get to the promised land. <laughs> so he worked them over for 40 years. And you know, life, real life is kind of like that. Uh, we have goals, uh, places we want to go, destinations, hopes, ambitions, uh, a plan, but what happens is totally different than that. It takes longer, it's harder than we thought, there's roadblocks in the way, there's hurdles, all kinds of trouble along the way. And sometimes we just run into an impenetrable wall that you can't get through, a problem, a crisis situation that's just overwhelming. And you've heard all the cliches, you get it between a rock and a hard place, you're in a jam, you're up the creek without a paddle, you're in a pickle, you're up a tree, you're cornered, you're hard pressed, you're trapped like a rat. Uh, times that try men's souls, you've heard it all. And it's because the, this is the story of the human race. We all have these kind of problems from time to time. And as the author says, uh, you sometimes find yourself, as they did, between the devil and the deep Red Sea. The people looked to their left when they got there, and they saw a mountain. And they looked to their right, and they saw another mountain. They looked in front of them, and they saw the deep Red Sea. And then when they turned around and looked behind them, 
Who'd they see? The devil, the Pharaoh with the iron chariots, you know, with those really cool wheels that have the spears and the blades on the wheels that churn, you know, people up and everything. Uh, and they go, there's no way out. There, there's nowhere to go. We're completely doomed. And when you think about it, there's only one direction they didn't look. Up. That's where they needed to look. That's where the help was going to come from. Uh, they would have to look up and by faith let God lead them out of this problem. But before they looked up, the people went after Moses. And uh, it, we're going to look at the text in just a minute. They basically said, were there no graves in Egypt? We could have died there. It would have been a lot easier than coming out here and killing us out here and burying us in the wilderness. You brought us out here to die. If you saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston, remember that old movie? Remember who the antagonist was that was always there when, with Charlton Heston? You know, he'd give the positive news. And remember the guy, Edward G. Robinson. He was always the antagonist, the bad guy. And right there at that time in the movie, Edward G. Robinson came up to the people and goes, yeah, where's your Moses now, sir? I tried to tell you about that. You wouldn't listen to me then, but maybe you'll listen to me now. Yeah, where's your Moses now? How's he going to get you out of this scrape? <laughs> and it did look at, like even when you're in the movie, you're going, man, there, there's, there's no way out of this deal. But what did Moses say? He's the only person that had the right perspective. He said, look up, have faith. Let God do something. What, what, what is God going to do? Uh, he said, stand still and watch. God's going to do something. I don't know what it is. Don't give up. What is stand still? It doesn't mean do nothing. It means uh, don't give up. Don't surrender. It sounded like, you know, from their explanation, you know, of their situation, it sounded like they wanted to just surrender and go, we're going to go back and be slaves again. We give. And Moses say, no, no, just stand still, wait on the Lord. He's going to do something. He led us here. We didn't come here by chance. This is where he brought us, right here. And he's in control. He's going to do something. So stand still. Don't give up. Um, and, of course, if you're Moses, you're going to say, I wonder what he is going to do. <laughs> Probably considering his options. Uh, I wonder if these people can swim. Are there any local boats we can buy? Uh, you know, somebody said, Roe versus Wade. <laughs> See how I got that in there? No, Moses is saying, just trust God. He's going to do something for you. Realize that he brought you here, and God means for you to be exactly where you are. And if you think about the, the rest of the Bible, all the characters in the Bible, if you'll notice, every one of them ran into situations like this. Think about Abraham, the, the first guy that God called to Canaan. What happened? When he gets to Canaan, there's a famine. There's nothing to eat. Everybody's starving. Jacob, his grandson, uh, was sent to live with his uncle Laban. Uh, to get away from evil Esau. All, and what happened for the next 20 years, he got tricked about 10 times and, and really is mistreated by his uncle. Joseph, his son Joseph, uh, 
He was beaten and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery in Egypt. Moses was a fugitive for standing up for his fellow Jews. Gideon was starving, hiding, eating raw grain, you know, hiding in a little corner just trying to survive uh, when God helped him. David was threatened by King Saul. He had been faithful and done everything the king asked him, and the king still wanted to kill him because he was jealous of his popularity, right? Hezekiah, the king during Isaiah's uh, prophecy, was leading a reform movement when Jerusalem was surrounded by this huge Assyrian army. He went, uh-oh, how are we going to get out of this? In the New Testament, Jesus commanded his disciples into the boat. He said, everybody get in the boat, we're going to go to the other side. What happened? They got out there in the middle of the lake, and a huge storm came in. And his disciples said, what the heck? He's the one that got us in this boat and brought us out here. Did you bring us out here to drown? You know? This, this is the situation every Bible character finds himself in. Uh, all the apostles, of course, were persecuted and imprisoned for sharing the gospel. Here they are doing the right thing, uh, just as God commanded them to do, and they find themselves in prison, beaten, etc. And, of course, the ultimate example is Jesus himself. Humble, loving, healing people, doing all these great things, offering the gospel to salvation that God uh, provides, and next thing he knows, he's up on the cross, crucified, right? Uh, and so God solved the, all of their problems in a way that, they, that people just never dreamed of. Uh, I saw an illustration or a joke of that. Uh, a nine-year-old kid, uh, Joey, was asked by his mother what he learned in Sunday school. And he said, well, we saw the story of Moses. And she said, well, what'd they tell you? He said, well, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead Israel out of Egypt. And at the Red Sea, his engineers built pontoon bridges, and the people walked across safely. And to give them time to make it, he got on his walkie-talkie and called in an airstrike of F-35 stealth bombers <laughs> on the Egyptian army. And then he brought in the Black Hawk helicopters to lay down a smoke screen between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians tried to cross the Red Sea, nuclear-powered submarines sent cruise missiles and blew them all up. <laughs> and his mother interrupts and says, Wait a minute, Joy, is that really what your teacher taught you? Well, no, but if I told you the way she said, you'd never believe it. <laughs> never dreamed that God would rescue them in the way that he did by parting the Red Sea. And, of course, uh, I saw another deal with critics. A uh, college professor was saying that, you know, the Bible, everything in there is wrong. He says, for instance, uh, in the in the story about the Red Sea, it really is a misprint. It means the Reed Sea. And it's kind of a swamp there. The water's only about 18 inches deep. So they had no trouble getting across there. So one student held up his hand and said, then actually it's a much bigger miracle. Well, what do you mean? The entire Egyptian army drowned in 18 inches of water. <laughs> So let's review, let's, uh, let me give you the context, turn in uh, Exodus, to your Bible to Exodus, uh, chapter 
uh, 13, just to see what's going on here, how they ever got out there to that Red Sea. Pick it up in actually in chapter 12, verse 31. Exodus 12, verse 31. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night. God did. And he said, rise up. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Pharaoh actually did. After the Passover and all the firstborn in Egypt were killed, Pharaoh says, okay, that's it. And God had already done ten impressive, awesome miracles that were really disasters that God brought upon Egypt. Because when, of course, Moses first went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, he said, you can't, no way. Why would I let my workforce go? My free workforce, my slaves. They do all the work. I'm not letting them go. And he says, who sent you anyway? He said, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Uh, and he said, hey, we're the strongest power in the world. The, the Egyptian gods are the ones in power. And so the God of Israel was going to show Pharaoh that that was completely wrong. There, there was only one God, and it was the God of Israel. And so after ten impressive, awesome miracles, uh, basically God's self-revelation, God's self-disclosure through these incredible miracles, uh, he called Moses had called Moses in the burning bush and said, I'm going to do this. Moses had said, how are you going to do it? It can't be done. Oh, and of course, Moses witnessed these ten incredible miracles that God did to cause this to happen so that Pharaoh actually sent for them and he says, get out. <laughs> Verse 31, get all your people up and get out. Because if this goes on, there will be nothing left in Egypt will be completely wiped out. You and all your children and every one of you get out. Take all your flocks and herds and when you go, ask God to bless me. That just tells you that Pharaoh now knows who the one and only God truly is. Uh, and the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, if we don't get rid of all these people, we're going to all be dead. They were scared by this, by this point. Uh, so the people took all their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. That's why on Passover, the Jews now don't, uh, they have unleavened bread because they didn't have time. Uh, so they remember that. They got out so quickly that they didn't take the time to let it rise. Uh, and not only that, verse 35, the sons of Israel uh, had obeyed God by asking them for all the gold and silver of the Egyptians. And they gladly gave it. If that's what it takes to get y'all out of here, take it. So the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Actually, God did. If you want to really tell the truth on this. Uh, and so, in verse 31 through 37 there, we see that the people of Israel are basically not only let go, they were ordered out, begged to leave. And how many were there? This is going to be important to the story uh, crossing the Red Sea. Verse 37, 
chapter 12, verse 37. There were 600,000 adult men. 600,000 adult men. So think of the numbers involved here. Think of the numbers we're talking about. Because we'd already read back when Pharaoh was trying to wipe them out uh, by killing all the babies, how fertile the people were, the Israelis, the Hebrews were, and they were, they were always outbirthing him. No matter how many babies he tried to kill, they kept having more than he could. So they were very fertile. So we know, I mean, what, what ratio are you going to put? Like three uh, women and children per man? If you do that, you end up, uh, and you take the the uh, massed multitude that he speaks up in the nest verse, all the other people that were slaved, they were released as well. And you do the math, and I think you're going to end up with about 3 million people in that neighborhood. That's a lot of people. That's like asking DFW to get up and move one day. I mean, it's just like the, the scope of it is huge. And of course, there's no way in that uh, the Charlton Heston movie, you could ever get that context of just how awesome and huge this miracle is for three million people to just get up together and leave in one day and go out into the wilderness. Um, and they knew uh, how to go and where to go because all they had to do is look up and see the glory of God in the cloud and follow it, and God led them around. Uh, look in uh, Exodus 13, 17, in the next chapter. And it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land, down the coast roads. Because the Philistines were there and he knew they'd bump into them. Uh, but he wanted them, purposely led them out into the wilderness where they would have to be completely dependent on him for everything. Out there in that desert, I've been there. A few of you probably have been there. A lizard can't live there. That's how bad it is. There's no water. There's no food. Uh, only God could supply their needs, and they were going to have to completely depend on him. So God led them out there. In verse 18, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. They were organized. And Moses took the bones of Joseph as he had promised to do. And they carried him because Joseph had said, bury me in the promised land. In verse 21, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud, his glory by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So there was so the glory was so bright it lit up the way for them to follow. And he did not take it away by day or night. They followed the Lord. So they're going wherever he leads them. They're not going to end up on the Red Sea at the Red Sea by chance. He's going to lead them there. And then in chapter 14, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back. So they went out, and he says, Tell them to come back. So they're like going around in circles. And he has the appearance of they're just wandering aimlessly and don't know what they're doing. And so Pharaoh is going to see that. His scouts are going to come back and say, They're just wandering around in circles out there. 
they're like lambs to the slaughter. If you just let us organize the army, we can go out and clean them up. So verse 3, God says, For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's mind-blowing. God is actually going to move Pharaoh. He's the force behind Pharaoh having the idea to go out and get him, bring his army out to get him. That's very difficult for us to put our arms around. But all through the Bible, we find God doing this. Uh, he doesn't harden people's hearts to do something they don't want to do. It's almost like he just allows them, opens the gate, and lets them do what they really want, their, want to do. Their really uh, heart's desire is not to lose their slaves. And he had already made that clear as God was doing all those miracles, those ten miracles. The text said on each one, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He did it. He didn't want to let them go. He wanted to keep them. But at a point in time, the miracles got so fierce, so destructive, that he finally said, calf rope, I give. I don't want to let you go, but I have to. You'll destroy the whole country. And you know what the text then says? And God then hardened his heart. Basically, God was saying, you know what? I'm doing ten miracles. You're not pulling up after six or seven. I'm doing all ten. And so he literally, knowing uh, Pharaoh was a lost cause, he was an irreversible unbeliever, idol worshiper, God actually intervened and hardened his heart so that he would not let Israel go. And in this case, so that he would go out after them again. God was in control. And what is the purpose statement that God would do that? Look at verse 4. Verse four, chapter 14, 4. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. So what happens when they come out will bring great honor and glory to the God who deserves it. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Definite article, meaning the one and only Lord. They've got this huge group of uh, fake gods. I think, yeah, you can see the path there. I think Larry has the pantheon of Egyptian gods on one of his pictures. Can you find it? What? Can't find it? Okay. Uh, but he, they had a God for everything. River, sun, moon, you know, fertility, the whole deal. And, and all the miracles had basically revealed uh, that those gods were impotent. That there was only one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. I uh, remember what Yahweh mean when, when in uh, chapter 3 when Moses said, they've got their own gods, who shall I say sent me? And he, and he said... Tell them, I am that I am. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's Y-H-W-H. 
And uh, we get our word, uh, Texans get their word Jehovah <laughs> from Yahweh. How have we ever butchered it into that? I'll never know. But there's no actual word Jehovah in the Bible or anywhere else. Uh, somehow we came up with it. Uh, but it's an English uh, adaption of the Yahweh, the Hebrew Yahweh. Because in Hebrew, the J uh, has a Y sound. So I think the, uh, we as Texans saw that, you know, uh, J and said, well, that's Jah, Jah, you know. And uh, they came up with that. But uh, so the one and only God. And he will get all the glory for what's going, going to happen. So when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart. What were we thinking of when we let them go? We've lost all our servants. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And of course they go out. And uh, we find in uh, verse 10, 14.10, they come upon Israel, camp there at the Red Sea. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So they came very frightened. What was their reaction? Scared to death. They couldn't get across the Red Sea. They were trapped there. There was no way right or left. And now the iron chariots, those big old wheels with the blades on them are coming at them. There's no way out. Very frightened. Cried out. And they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this to us? And they're just all over him. Uh, and so verse 13, Moses says to the people, calm down. Don't fear. Were you not there when God did all those miracles before? So stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. God is going to do something. He led us out here. I know He's going to do something. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be big uh, and awesome because I don't know how else uh, we're going to get out of this situation. So He says, stand by. Don't give up. Don't surrender. And verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. God is going to do something. We're defenseless against those chariots. But... We're going to see what God's going to do. We'll, we'll stand by. We'll keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out? Well, what's wrong with these people? Screaming and hollering and complaining. Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as we go through the lessons, I think when we get to lesson number six, lesson number six is take the next logical step. You can't solve the problem in one day. So you just take the next logical step. There's got to be something we can do today. And so Moses tells them, okay, everybody turn back towards the Red Sea and start walking towards it. What? What good will that do? Just do it. Have faith. Live by faith. And so that's what they do. And as for you, lift up your staff, uh, God tells Moses, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Again, the purpose statement in verse 17. I will be honored. God's going to do it in such a way that nobody can doubt who's behind this. 
that all the glory will go to him. Now, if he had just uh, say, okay, I'm going to arm you guys, you know, with some good weapons, and you go fight the Egyptians, and if Israel had won, they might have said, look what we did. They'll be like you, all you real estate moguls. <laughs> you know, when you make a deal, you go, I was so smart. <laughs> I was brilliant. Or you drill an oil well and you hit oil and you'll go, I knew it was there. I'm a brilliant geologist. No, God said, I'm going to do this in such a way that nobody will have any delusions about how this happened and who was behind it. I will get all the glory. Uh, and that's the point, that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and I will be honored. And by the way, uh, 40 years later, did this message go out? 40 years later, when the Israelis, the second generation, has, has walked all the way around to the east side of the, the Jordan River, and they're crossing into the Promised Land, and the spies went to Rahab's house. You remember what Rahab said? We have heard of what your God did at the Red Sea. And we were filled with fear. And we know that your God is all-powerful. Yeah! God accomplished exactly what he was trying to do. And it had even lasting value uh, for when they came into the Promised Land later. All right? So, uh, how big a miracle? We, uh, we talked about just a minute ago that there was probably three million people. Uh, and forget the image of the, of the Ten Commandments movie, the Cecil B. DeMille movie, where they walked across in twos, you know? <laughs> if they actually did that, it would be 800 miles long. <laughs> and it would take over a month to cross the Red Sea. So they crossed in one day. So how many abreast? They'd have to be at least 5,000 abreast to walk across. And so that uh, Red Sea was probably separated in dry land for two to three miles for them to walk across in one day. That's a big miracle. Three million people walk across that deep sea uh, and that many people. It is an amazing miracle. It is awesome. It's beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. And so, without a doubt, when you read the story, the author wants you to know God led them there. They followed His glory. He brought Pharaoh out. He told them what to do. God is behind this whole thing. The sovereignty of God is what you can't miss here. And, of course, uh, when theologians, when uh, uh, churches, when seminaries, you know, try to study all this stuff, um, they come up with all these terms like predestination and foreknowledge and providence, you know. And when you find all that going on in the Bible, every one of those things, uh, and there's also free will, of course, free will. Uh, so, certain things in the Bible, uh, in this story, for instance, were predestined. 
God said, uh, I am going to deliver you. I'm going to take you to the promised land. That's going to happen. No matter what. I don't care uh, what Pharaoh does. I don't care what you people, whether you're obedient or disobedient, you're going to end up in the promised land. I've got that predestined. Uh, in the meantime, whether you go or your children go is dependent on your obedience. So that was not, in that sense, predestined. It was dependent on whether they were obedient or not. And there's all kinds of stories, like the story of David when uh, he was being chased around by Saul, Saul wanted to kill him. And so David uh, gets the prophet Nathan to check with God and say, if I go up to Keilah to save them from the Philistines, will I prevail? And the prophet says, God says, you will prevail. But will the citizens of Keilah rat me out and tell Saul that's where I am? He's, and the prophet said, yes, he will, they will rat you out and Saul will come up and kill you. <laughs> so David says, then I'm not going up there. <laughs> and he didn't. And so the Philistines weren't pushed out. The Philistines took Keilah and Saul didn't kill David. So that was all dependent on free will, see? But of course, the big picture, like in David's story, was that he was eventually going to become king. That was predestined. That's a done deal. And of course, in our time, in, in the New Testament, uh, the greatest example of that is predestination, is that the big issues of the incarnation, Jesus, the God himself taking on the flesh, was going to happen. All the prophets predicted it, and God had planned it, and he knew exactly when he was going to do it, and he did it, and nothing could stop him. As well as his sinless life, and his crucifixion, and his resurrection. All predestined. The free will was, of course, during, that, during those events, was what were the people going to do? Were they going to respond? How were they going to respond? Etc., etc. Uh, all of this, both things are happening. So God has foreknowledge, and certain things, the big things, He has predestined, and we have free will. Are you with me? I know that some of you are going, I don't know about this predestination stuff. I was brought up in such and such church, like my Sunday school class here. A guy raised his hand one time and he says, I'm a free will Baptist. Very defiantly. And I said, well, that's just wonderful. Back to the story. <laughs> but when you think about it, hopefully the way I explained it, you know, the big picture, it's like think of yourself on a, a ship, the Queen Mary, going from New York to London. During the voyage, you can make any decision you want to make. You decide when you want to eat, where you want to go, what you want to do, what you want to wear, everything. But the big thing, that boat is going to London. And that's the way life is. God has predestined the big picture but in the meantime, between those two points, we make our free will decisions. Uh, and then there's the providence of God. The providence of God is uh, how God somehow works together all the natural events. 
We can see the sovereignty of God in the Red Sea. God parted this awesome miracle. He's obviously in control. The power of God did that. But when it comes to providence, it's how God uses all the natural events that occur. Every little decision, every little circumstance, every event, somehow God is working together in all of that to bring it all together in your life. And as Paul says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. And that's what he's talking about, the providence of God in that situation. So no matter what the bad things in your life, if you get the call saying, you need to get to UT Southwestern in a hurry because you got about six months to live, pal. You know, when you get that, you got to go, what, what, what? <laughs> you know, and... Uh, but God's going to use even that to do something. You know, all, all the pieces to the puzzle, think of your life as this giant jigsaw puzzle, right? And God's going to bring all those natural events together. Uh, and in the end, it will all be for good. And he defines good there in verse 29, Romans 8, 29. Good is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. You thought good was a new car and a mansion and a new uh, cabin cruiser, and uh, a driver that hits it 350 yards, like you see on TV. You thought that was good. But in God's view, his definition, his dictionary, good is ultimately to be conformed to the image of Christ. And he's got that already figured out. That's going to happen. See, that's the providence of God. So, um, what have we got back here, Larry? The Westminster Confession about sovereignty of God. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Memorize that. <laughs> There'll be a test next week. <laughs> but I think that's well said. And then St. Augustine, the first great theologian in 400... A.D., he said, we know that humans have a free will and are held responsible. But we also know that God is sovereign. How these truths relate to each other is hard for us to understand. Yeah. And enough said. That's true, isn't it? It's hard to get your arms around how God could be in completely in control, completely involved in every situation, every circumstance, every decision. And yet, we have free will. We're the ones that are making all the decisions. So... About, and, and all the Bible stories you find both going on. So we know that it's true. Uh, we may not be able to define it perfectly, or we may not have the same viewpoint that God has from above, but still we can see it in all of the Bible stories. So the sovereignty of God um, and the first of the uh, Red Sea rules, first principle, realize that God means for you to be exactly where you are. He knows where you are and He is involved in your life and uh, He loves you at the same time. Those are two awesome things to believe in because you can get great comfort out of that. Think of that. God loves you unconditionally. In other words, no matter what you're going through, no matter who you are, no matter what mistakes you've made in the past, God loves you unconditionally. 
and God is sovereign. Think of the comfort that that should bring you. Okay, here I am, you know, up the creek without a paddle. Here I am, the unsolvable problem, the crisis situation. But God loves me. And He is all-powerful. That's peace and comfort. I don't know how he's going to get me out of this. I don't know if he is going to get me out of it. But I know that he's going to somehow bring good out of it in the end. No matter how it ends, God's in control. God's behind it. And it's going to end well according to his will. That's comforting. That should bring us all peace. And that's why it's so important to have that perspective, to think like that. That God is in control. And I know God wants the best for each one of us. And He will act to bring about uh, what the Scripture says in the end. All things will work together for good. And we can rest in that. As Moses said, we can be still. We can wait on the Lord. We can have peace in very distressful situations. Amen? Amen. Yeah. All right. Uh, every week, a new rule. <laughs> Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us in every way. Thank you, Lord, um, that no matter what crisis situation we run into or we find ourselves in, a lot of them we get ourselves in those, in those problems and others just seem to happen to us. But Lord, you are there with us. Uh, you alone know the way out, and you know how long it's going to take, and we just have to live by faith and let you do what you're going to do. And so, Lord, we put ourselves in your hands, and we step out in faith every day. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.